Canadian Military History Podcast. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. I'd like to start today's episode by looking at some of the feedback that I've received. Looking at iTunes and the guest book, there are no entries there. And the only feedback I've had this week comes from the Facebook page for the Queen's York Rangers. I see a comment from Marilyn Lawson Dixon who says, excellent show, and she's commenting on the episode where Chief Warrant Officer Grant Lawson was featured. Moving on, I'd like to cover off a quick little personal project. As you know, in order to get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me at my email address, MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com, but you can also follow me on Twitter at symbol MikeLacroix32. On Twitter and on Facebook, I use the hashtag CMHPod, CMHPod with the hashtag at the front. Along with Facebook and Twitter, this is where the personal project comes in. I'm doing a little bit of a personal project called hashtag Mike100Workouts. Now, you may think that the objective of Mike100Workouts is to complete 100 workouts, and I suppose that's what the name relays. And somebody did send me some feedback as I got to workout number 25 that I was a quarter of the way to my objective. But that's not really the objective of Mike 100 Workouts. The objective of Mike 100 Workouts is a lifestyle change. So if at the age of 45 and after 25 years of military service, if I can make a lifestyle change that gets me into better shape, into a better position, into being able to set a better example, then that's what I have to do. So this is motivation for me. Mike 100 Workouts or hashtag Mike 100 Workouts is motivation for me to change the habits and the approach of exercise and physical activity. What's the point? It's a lifestyle change. So instead of trying to find time for exercise and physical activity, I am forcing myself to make the time for exercise and physical activity. I joined a gym, I've got a workout partner that coaches me through the tough times, and I have all my friends out there on Facebook and Twitter who send me messages saying little words of encouragement to keep me motivated and keep me on track and to get to my goal. And what happens after exercise number 100 of Mike's 100 workouts? Well, perhaps that will be an excellent sign, but the workouts will not end at number 100, that's for sure. So anyhow, you can follow me on Twitter at symbol Mike Lacroix32. You can follow me on Facebook. I'm out there on Mike Lacroix and my hashtag for the 100 workout program is hashtag Mike 100 workouts. Today's guest is Colonel Jordy Elms, MSMCD. Colonel Elms joined the 48th Highlanders of Canada as a young piper at the age of 13. He was allowed to play as a musician in the band at that young age. Later, he did follow through and joined the 48th Highlanders of Canada before enrolling in the Royal Canadian Regiment in 1974. He served in the Royal Canadian Regiment as an officer 
And it wouldn't be much of a surprise if I told you that Colonel Elms served in Afghanistan. We have many people that served in Afghanistan, including many of my guests. The surprising thing would be is if I told you that he served in Afghanistan during the withdrawal of Soviet forces in the late 1980s. I know that fact came to me as a surprise because I had absolutely no idea we had Canadian soldiers serving in Afghanistan during that time period. Being an officer in the Royal Canadian Regiment, it's easy to see that he served in Germany and in Cyprus, but he also served in Lebanon and Israel. A couple of his other duties, he served as the defense advisor to the Canadian High Commission in Pakistan and also to the Canadian Embassy in Afghanistan. He also earned the Meritorious Service Medal for his work in Afghanistan and Pakistan from August 2003 to November 2007. So in other words, he returned to Afghanistan after approximately 20 years. Now, Colonel Elms served in three regiments. So he also served in the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders of Canada as the commanding officer. Colonel Elms currently serves as the Honorary Lieutenant Colonel of the 48th Highlanders of Canada. So he's returned to his original unit as an Honorary Lieutenant Colonel. He's involved with a multitude of foundations such as the Royal Canadian Legion, the Royal Canadian Military Institute, and also Canada Company. And he's also taken on a volunteer position with the City of Hamilton as a military advisor and consultant to the mayor and the mayor's office. He consults and provides advice on parades, military protocol, and veterans affairs that are relevant to the City of Hamilton. It's always interesting to have a guest on the podcast with such a breadth of service as Colonel Elms. Here's my interview with Colonel Jordy Elms. Colonel Elms, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Mike. It's great to do this. I've been following it, and I think it's a really good project you're doing, and I'm following it with great interest. I think it is a really neat little project. Thank you. Any feedback is appreciated. I'm always looking for some feedback. You and I met at the Highland Regiment Mess Dinner hosted by the 40th Highlanders of Canada last year in 2013. That was at Moss Park Armory. That's right. It was one of the first things I did after I came back to the Highlanders as the Honorary Lieutenant Colonel. It was a great chance to meet uh, people from the Highland and Scottish regiments across the country, and it it looks like we're going to do it again this year, a little closer to where I actually live in Hamilton. Excellent. The Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders are there. There certainly is, and I was pleased at one point to be the CEO of them. Oh, that's right. That's true. Sir, you and I share another connection in that currently I hold the appointment of the Brigade Sergeant Major for 32 Canadian Brigade Group. That's right. Yes. And uh, in fact, my father was one of the first ones to hold that appointment back when it was Toronto Militia District back in, I think it was around 19, I want to say 1970, maybe 1970. And uh, he went from the Highlanders to do that. And then he went on to actually be the area sergeant major. And eventually he was the one and in fact, only uh, sergeant major of the reserve forces for a while as well. Wow. Currently, we have the appointment of the Chief Warrant Officer of Reserves and Cadets that I suppose would be the equivalent of his highest level that he attained. No, I don't know that it would be. He was selected by then Major General Reserves, but it wasn't a staff position. It was, a tra- it was more of a traditional RSM position. Oh, interesting. And he was the only one. I, at the end of the day, they didn't, they, they didn't continue to have it. I think, don't know whether it was cost or what it was, but he was the only one that ever had it. I've got his scroll at home somewhere, his scroll of appointment. <laughs> right. So have you had a chance to review the questions? I have. And are you ready to go? Ready to go. Why don't you tell us why you joined the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, as we just talked a little bit about, I, I was kind of born into it at the back door of the sergeant's mess. <laughs> 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm the I'm the third generation of my family to start out service as a 48 pounder, and strangely enough, all three of us served for 43 years in uniform. <laughs> my wife was also the third generation of her family. Both are uh, my father and her grandfather were RSMs of the Highlanders. I think I was about six when my mom asked me, "Did I want to learn to play the bagpipes?" And that pretty much sealed the deal in a path that led me as soon as I could. Which in those days things weren't quite as rigorous as they were in terms of recruiting. So at 13, I was actually in the Highlanders in the pipes and drums Wow! and ended up doing six years there and then liked it. So I joined the uh, regular army and spent 35 years in the RCR before I came home uh, after I retired in 2010. But I, I, I don't think there was any doubt that I was going to be a soldier. That's all I ever wanted to be. What was the world like when you joined? It was the Cold War world, I guess. We were all w- wondering what was going to happen from the Cuban Missile Crisis and on, and and the army was a Cold War army. If if uh, in in the in the militia at that time, it's not like it is now. Certainly, there were two things that you might do that would be classed as exciting if you were had done the training and were around long enough and and could spare the time, whether it be from work or school. You could do uh, a flyover to four brigade in Germany for months to six weeks. It tended to happen every fall. Or you could do maybe once every couple of years an opportunity would come up for a new Viking, which was the Arctic sovereignty exercises at the time. But that was pretty much the only opportunities that reservists got to employ. I I was kind of lucky. I I, I actually did end up doing, uh, doing both of those, going to serve with three Met Commando for six weeks one summer and and as part of when I decided to become an officer in the militia and joined under what was then called the Reserve Officers University Training Plan, R-O-U-T-P, it's now I think called RESO, we ended with a new Viking serial on one of our phases. So right. I, that, that sort of was what it did. And then when I joined the regular army, if you were in the regular army at that time, that our, regular, our army at that time did one of two things. In NATO, we, we served in uh, NATO things. It was the brigade in Germany. There was an allied uh, mobile force, ace mobile force, which at that time happened to be 3RCR in Petawawa that did flyovers to Norway and things like that, maybe every two years. And there was one peacekeeping mission generally. It was There were a couple of others, but the real one that the army concentrated on was Cyprus. And so if you were an RCR, soldier, you, you had probably been to, to Cyprus, to Germany, and that would have been about it if you were lucky. Right. I managed to get a trip over to Germany in 1989, one of the last fall X's before that mission closed out. What were you like when you joined? That's a bit of a strange question because you said you joined at 13 and then you joined again at 19. That's right. So I don't know where your military service starts. I'm sure in your mind it starts long before the law would support it. But anyhow. Yeah. Well, I, I was a student. I mean, and I, I loved being in the regiment. I loved being in the militia. I When I finally went to university, I, I like to say that what did I testify at university? I majored in militia and Shirley, who's been my wife for 38 years, because that it certainly wasn't a very successful academic pursuit at that point. I, I grew up enough to do that later. Uh, but I was I, I just felt myself really lucky to be able to do those things. When I went to join the regular army, I, I actually joined on Friday the 13th, uh, which I have always said is, is one of the luckier days of, of my life. So I wouldn't say I was very mature, but but I just enjoyed it and I had fun with it. I, I, I was a good student, but as I say, that seemed to take a bit of a sidetrack when I met my wife. And when I decided to become an officer in the Highlanders under that program, uh, on our 
phase three in 1974 at the infantry school. By the time I finished that, I knew that I wanted to, to transfer to the regular force and, and uh, do it for, for a career, and I and that was sort of what happened. But when I was growing up in high school, my life was be, being in the militia and being a Highlander. I, I didn't go to things on uh, Friday nights because we paraded on Friday nights, and that's where I had to be, and I, I, I wanted to be there. I mean, i get home from school. I'd do whatever I had to do to, to meet any homework requirements for the day, and, uh, and then I'd want to head off down to the armories, and that generally meant that because your dad's the RSM of the unit, when he's leaving, you're leaving. <laughs> yeah. And so I'd have everything ready to get in the car, and we'd be headed down Mount Pleasant at somewhere around quarter to seven, Tuesday nights and Friday nights. Sir, what is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces? Uh, over over 43 years, you sure have a lot of them. And uh, and I, I guess uh, if I were to look at, at one of them, it's hard to come up with. I, I, I guess I got two, really. I, I, on the 15th of February, 1989, I was part of a small UN mission called the United Nations Good Officers Mission of Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, which was in essence designed to witness the withdrawal of the Soviet forces from Afghanistan. So on that day, I was standing on a bridge called at Hairatan and on the northern end of Afghanistan as General Grom was the last Soviet to leave Afghanistan and that, that was just a, a tremendously who'd have ever thunk it as they say that I'd be there then and more so who'd have ever thought that you know in 2003 I'd be back there and that we'd be so involved after the world had changed so much the other one had to do with it's a more pleasant memory I guess although that wasn't an unpleasant memory is that on the 10th of October 2002 in Hamilton at Cobbs Coliseum while I was had the privilege of being the CEO of the Argyles in Hamilton I was on parade with 240 great soldiers and in being witnessed by 17,000 people cheering at Cobbs Coliseum as the Queen presented new colors to the regiment. Amazing. I had the privilege of doing that as the parade sergeant major for the Toronto Scottish and the Royal Regiment of Canada. It's an awesome feeling. I tell you. It is. Yeah. It is. And I had absolutely no idea that there were Canadian soldiers in Afghanistan during the Soviet withdrawal. I'd never heard about that before. And you're right. The historical irony is really telling. It was the beginning, I guess, of the change. It was the first mission that the UN had done in 1988 that came up. It was the result of a thing called the Geneva Accords. And I ended up, in fact, I was on the Army staff course at Kingston at the time. And because I had some recent experience in the Middle East and because the guy that was building the mission wanted me to do it, I was actually pulled off the staff course one term early to go and do it, which caused some problems with the people at Fort Frontenac, <laughs> which we did make up because a year and a half later, or a little more than a year and a half later, I had to go back and finish the last tutorial if I wanted to get promoted. And so I did. So it was an interesting thing because you know up until that time, we had that NATO-Germany thing and we had the Cyprus. And a little bit, you know, the Golan, there was the end off mission, but that was all. But the UN hadn't really created any new missions in about 11 years. And then they created this one. And, and it was sort of the explosion into the era of, I guess you'd say, more robust peacekeeping, peacemaking that led us to do that, Western Sahara, Bosnia, and uh, some missions in Africa and elsewhere that over the next well, decade, a little more than a decade before we moved on to the Gulf War One and Two and what would become Afghanistan after 9-11. Right. 
I don't know if you've already answered this question, but who was your greatest influence or who was the most memorable character that you've encountered well, during your service? My dad was certainly a huge influence. I mean, I followed him around like a puppy <laughs> as a kid, <laughs> and, and that's why there was no doubt that I'd become a 48th Highlander. But in the Army, I would have to say that the greatest influence had to be a fellow that is, is a, and I'm a, I was an RCR officer, <laughs> it was a Patricia, who was the name of Colonel Don Ethel, who's currently the Lieutenant Governor of the province of Alberta. Uh, I worked for him three times. Uh, he's the guy that pulled me off the staff course and was man enough to explain to General Milner why I had to do that. Hmm. And he just is, when you talk about mentor, teacher, natural leader, went from private to colonel. Still a good man whom from time to time I ask advice from on projects that I'm doing even now. And uh, just, you know, one of those good men. Any memorable characters? Oh, yeah, yeah there, there always are. Every regiment does have them. And, and uh, we say nowadays that we can't, you know, we can't afford them anymore, but, but they still <laughs> pop up from time to time. I mean, I had a, I had a driver once named Mac and he was, he was a great guy, you know, he, he would never get us lost and he had the shock of red hair and, and he was always in trouble with the, uh, with the sergeant major. And we were in a, a mission once and it was cold somewhere. I think it was in Bosnia. And of course, that was the beginning of the uh, the no alcohol in the field policy that had come up, and, and it was a good policy. You know, it really was the right thing to do at that time. People in the area used to say, "Oh, the Americans who were following the Americans." No, it, it was actually really about taking care of people and being safe. But it was so cold, and I was in the CP, and it was a busy day. And I'm standing right beside the sergeant major, who was a great guy. His nickname was Starchy. And my driver comes in, and he gives me a cup of coffee. <laughs> and I think, "Oh, gee, thanks. That's great because it's freaking cold." And hands me this cup. I take a sip. <laughs> And sure enough, it's loaded with rum. <laughs> and the sergeant major, who was a pretty, you know, a pretty good friend too, uh, he says, "Oh, can I have a sip of that?" Oh, I said, "You wouldn't like this, sergeant major. It's awful." <laughs> but we had we had lots of good guys then, and I, I just find that even if they're not characters, I've always found that when we look at the army then and the army now and the people you deal with, I, I just I'm just amazed at the talents of our soldiers in Canada, and that means militiamen, regular force. I, I mean, I've watched. As a CO and as a company commander, like just wasn't a day ever went by that they didn't do something that just impressed me with their ability to decide to do the right thing in the right place at the right time. They would do some funny things from time to time <laughs> that you weren't expecting, but boy, they never, they just never let you down. And, and when I look today at, at a soldier, whether he be from 48 Pounders today or 3 RCR, and you certainly would have seen it yourself when you travel around to the different missions, there, there just is no qualitative difference between those two guys anymore. Right. And when they're all dressed up with their great new kit on, you can't tell. Yeah, absolutely. So we've come to the last question of the interview. What is the greatest challenge you had to overcome? Well, the greatest challenge I had to overcome, on the uh, 16th of September, 1989, I was involved in a car accident on Highway 35 outside my cottage. That left me with a broken neck, seven broken ribs, a shattered hip, and a bunch of other injuries. And I really thought my life and my career was over. But thanks to Don Ethel, it turned out it wasn't, and some great Canadian Forces medical people at, and some great people at Sunnybrook that had the wherewithal and the, the good sense to say, don't do anything, just take him to there. And I, w I was a long way coming back, and I'll tell you, it, it's a scary thought, and I later on from there became a career manager, which in the regular force system is, can be a window to promotion. It can also be a window to release when people have a medical problem or a discipline problem. But generally, when you talk about medical reviews and things like that, and you're, it's the same in any other life. It's, it's easy to say we have to do this or we have to do that, but when you're talking about a, a thing that may take somebody's livelihood 
or the ability to feed his family or the career that he invested his life into this point, and you're going to sit across from him and explain to him why it looks like this might have to happen uh, or that might have to happen. It really gives you a pretty good sense of what's important in life and what's important to them, and, and you can't treat them in a cavalier manner when you're sort of telling them that maybe you're not going to get promoted. Maybe you're going to have to go somewhere you didn't want to go, and it's easy for us to say it's a military requirement, but he has kids in school and he has a wife that has a job, and there's all kinds of other considerations that they are important in day's life. And, and while it's easy to say a soldier comes first, if, if the soldier's not happy, he's not going to be that good a soldier. Right. But that took me, well, it was four months in hospital, and it was easily a year and a half before I came back. So, And then I was lucky I served for another 20 odd years. So I guess gods were smiling on me that day. Hmm. Well, it's great that you managed to come back from that. And a lot of people do take those injuries and it does depress them and it does cause them to give up. That's one of my previous guests theme is the never quit yeah. theme. Master Corporal Jody Minnick. Yeah. yeah. And it's so great to see guys like Jody and, and some others that really are just setting a standard for stuff that we never believed we'd be even talking about 15 years ago. Right, and some of the great efforts that are going on to take them from being wounded in, and in the old days. The answer would have been somebody that was as badly injured as Jody Middick. We'd have said goodbye to him. Now we at least, it's a partnership when they decide what the next stage of their life is. But we've had guys that have come back to serve. We've had guys doing great things. And we've had guys that we've helped move on to something else if that's what they wanted to do. Right. It's just never easy. Is there anything you're working on right now? I know you're pretty active in the military community, at least in Toronto. I am. Well, I'm I'm involved with a few things. I'm trying to be involved in a few less because I'm trying to give, uh, you know, it was a, it was kind of when I when I came, was asked a couple of years ago what I like to come back to the unit I started out in in 1967 as the honorary lieutenant colonel, I was kind of blown away by it. And so I, I'm trying to change my priorities so that they get the first line of attack kind of thing in most effort. And we've got a number of things coming up that involve the regiments coming up with its uh, 125th anniversary in, uh, in 2016. And up leading up to them, we have all these events that, that are just coming Coming into place, whether it be the 100th anniversary of World War One, the 70th and 75th of World War Two, uh, the end of operations in Afghanistan, all of which are going to lead us through a path up to the to our 125th anniversary as we look for regimental ways to commemorate them and with ways to to look at how we mobilize our regimental family going forward. Things have changed since some of our associations were created after World War II. I'm also involved in the city of Hamilton where I'm the uh, the special advisor to the mayor on uh, military veterans matters and protocol on things. That's just a volunteer thing I do because I heard the current mayor there say some things that I thought were very complimentary about his, his willingness to do things to mark the contributions of citizens and soldiers. And so I, I said, well, if you want some help on that, I, I wouldn't mind doing that. I'm on the board of the commissioners there, which is, a, as you know, is a, an organization that is committed to helping veterans find employment at, at times in their life when they perhaps want to supplement it or do something a little different in, in different areas. So those things all keep me busy and I'm, I'm good. I'm blessed with three regiments, as you know, the <laughs> RCR and the 48th and the Argyles, all of which seem to have little projects for me to do going down the road. And, and I have a, a wife that after 38 years, 27 homes and uh, or 22 homes in seven countries and four provinces is, that I'm still trying to help, help unpack because it appears that this is actually the last house. 
<laughs> and we do have to take everything out of the boxes and put it away, or if it doesn't fit somewhere, because we've spent several postings going around saying, well, that would be a good thing in the new house. Well, now we're in the new house, and we've had several of those things that would be good that maybe we have two or three of rather than one. Right. But that certainly keeps me busy, and that's uh, that's what I'm doing. I, I, I own a small consulting firm that I'm just in the process of setting up that deals largely with some international relations type things and cross-cultural human intelligence, I guess I'd, I'd call it. You certainly would know from your own experience in, in Africa that just because somebody speaks to you in English doesn't mean they understand what you said to them. <laughs> Absolutely, sir. So the recording date's not going to really match with the release date, but today is the 18th of January 2014, and you and I are going somewhere tonight, aren't we? That's right. We're attending an event that's put on by the association of, of another Highland Regiment than the two that we are associated with here. The Black Watch hold an annual called the Red Hackle Dinner here in Toronto. They, they have quite a vibrant association branch here that has for years been holding their annual dinner and they're holding it tonight. And tonight they have a, a special guest in the person of Lieutenant Colonel Peter Little, who's the commanding officer of the 7th Battalion Royal Regiment of Scotland, which is their one of their two reserve slash territorial battalions. And he's going to be the speaker tonight. Right. He's a great guy. The Black Watch also share a connection with the RCR because although the Black Watch continues to serve in the city of Montreal and quite proudly, many of their members moved to the Royal Canadian Regiment when... They returned to the... I like to say on that, and it's one of those things I got from my father, they they came from the reserve and they, they went back to the reserve in 1970. Still the same Black Watch that, you know, a very proud regiment. And in fact, one of the projects with my other regiment, the RCR, is that I'm helping put together a group to do a post-World War II history project, basically, that captures some of that. And for the first time, we're actually going to make sure that that's going to be a huge chapter, because in 1970, the Royal Canadian Regiment, which, as we like to remind people, is Canada's national regiment, uh, gained two regiments. They gained the Black Watch and they gained the Regiment of Canadian Guards, which became their second and third battalions at the time. And it wasn't an amalgamation, but in fact, they brought huge strengths to our regiment when they did that. And one of the people, like if I had to flip a coin about another person that had influenced my desire to be a soldier generally, it's a guy named that you, you probably know as Colonel Ian Fraser, who was the creator of the Halifax tattoo. Ian Fraser was the seal of the infantry school when I finished phase three, and that, that made me decide that I wanted to be an infantry officer. He has had a huge influence on generations of infantry officers and NCOs through the way he commanded and reorganized the school in the 70s that we still feel today. And at that time, you, you know, you have officers who in 1970 were majors in the Black Watch and in 1972 were commanding RCR battalions. And it, it's a process that went amazingly well. And the relations between the units have been good ever since. That's great. Well, sir, we've come to the end of the show. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say just to summarize? Thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to do this, Mike. I, I'm, I look forward to listening to future uh, versions of the podcast. As I say, I think it's a it's a really good project that talks about, gives a, a living indication of the nature of the history of the Canadian military. And I, I, I wish you all the luck in the world on it. Thank you, sir. I look forward to seeing you tonight and we can talk some more. Okay. Take care. Thanks for doing this. You too. Good luck. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. 
While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.